Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Once again, we thank you for the beautiful weather you gave us today uh, to come together as your family, as brothers and sisters. We're bound together by the Holy Spirit and the love of Christ. We are many members making up one body. When one grieves, we all grieve. When one rejoices, we all rejoice. Lord, we thank you for your word that it doesn't change no matter what the culture or society says about it, no matter how irrelevant or out of touch or outdated the culture or society says it is, they're wrong. <laughs> Your word will always remain the truth. It's whether or not we come to that place in our lives to surrender to it. I pray that we would anchor our souls to it, that it would be our food each day. Lord, I pray that your spirit would go forth as we take a look at your word, that your seeds of truth may, may be buried deep within us and bear real fruit in our lives. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In an article published a few years ago on a popular news website, here are just a few arrests that actually took place in 2019. Three women in August of 2019 had the brilliant idea of going into a New Jersey store. So I'm picking on our own state here. And while two of them distracted the staff, the third one stole a baby stroller. The problem? Well, they decided to make it a family affair, had included their kids in on the fun, and ended up accidentally leaving one of those kids behind in the store as they made their getaway. Needless to say, they didn't get very far. A man walked into a sporting goods store in April of that year, and while he paid for some of the items he, he was in there with, he also walked out of the store with some sunglasses and ammunition without paying for them. My question is, how did he get the ammunition and just walk out? Anyways, three hours later, the man walked back into the store to ask for a job application <laughs> and then walked out with a couple more pairs of sunglasses he didn't pay for. He was arrested shortly after and the items were returned. I'm wondering if that was enough of a deal breaker for the store hiring him or not. And in November of 2019, police arrested a man for stealing an SUV. He had originally been arrested for driving with a suspended license, and then it was found out that the vehicle he was driving had been reported stolen. Now this isn't something out of the ordinary. But hours later, the man's younger brother was presumably on his way to bail him out from jail when he was arrested after giving the police a short chase. The charge, also driving a stolen SUV. <laughs> These were all examples of weird and strange arrests, but because what the indi individuals who were arrested had done was weird and strange. As we make a transition into the Gospel of John today from Jesus' last and biggest public miracle to the events directly connected to his imminent arrest and crucifixion, we'll see that the arrest plans are strange because Jesus hadn't actually done anything wrong. The arrest plans, rather, are based on the paranoia of the authorities of what could happen if Jesus is not arrested soon. At the, at the end of last week's passage, if you remember, 
There were two different responses to Jesus calling a man who had been dead for four days out of his tomb, fully and physically alive. One response was that some of the people started to believe in who Jesus had been claiming he was this entire three and a half years of his earthly ministry, the Son of God and the prophesied Messiah. The other response was for others to, in the crowd that day to dig their heels further in, and even though it didn't make any sense, continue to believe Jesus had just done another magic trick or was just working through demonic power and went tattling to the Pharisees about what Jesus had just done. That tattling directly leads to what happens in this morning's passage. So, if you brought your Bible with you, please turn to John chapter 11. Uh, if you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to John chapter 11 or look this up on your favorite Bible app on your smartphone. John chapter 11, we're going to be picking up in verse 47 and verse 48. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So what is happening here? Who, who, uh, who here has heard of the Jewish ruling council known as the Sanhedrin before? You've heard that term before. Okay, this was a group of 70 men plus the high priest who, uh, made up of leading religious men who was basically the Jewish supreme court to a certain extent. All capital offenses and punishments were stripped from them by the Roman authorities well before this, but they still had some power to decide the lesser cases that lower courts could not. But here was a landmark convening of the group. This wasn't to discuss the details of a case brought to them from a lower court. This was to discuss what they were going to do with this Jesus of Nazareth, especially in light of the very public and undeniable miracle he had just performed in Bethany. As noted by one biblical scholar, their collective exasperation is, oh, what are we going to do with him now? Everything we've been doing to combat his teaching and ministry, i.e. vocal condemnation of it as a group, excommunication of people from various synagogues, and adamantly teaching against him is not working. He continues to work miracles, and not only that, but they continue to get more and more extravagant. More and more people are following him, and nothing is stopping him. The Sanhedrin's greatest fear at this point with Jesus was that the Romans, who only recognized Caesar as the one king, would catch wind of this renegade preacher who the Jewish people were rumoring to be the Jewish messianic king and go to war against Judea and Jerusalem, take away their temple, and destroy their nation. That was their greatest fear. But even with this paranoid fear, everything they had tried to do to stop it had accomplished nothing. To this angst, 
but no offered gutsy solution, the high priest Caiaphas, in frustration at their cowardice and not bringing up the obvious, as pointed out by one biblical scholar, takes matters into his own hands, verses 49 through 50. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. In the Mosaic law, the high priest was to serve a lifetime term until he died. Only then was the torch passed on to the next man who would take on that position. However, at this point in Jewish history and under Roman occupation, the high priest was chosen by the Romans, and they could be replaced at any point the Romans chose. And this is why John says that Caiaphas was the high priest that year and, and points that out. Biblical scholarship notes that Caiaphas, whose name we're all well aware of from the accounts of Jesus' trial and crucifixion, was actually the longest-serving high priest under Roman occupation. Caiaphas ruled as high priest from 18 AD to 36 AD and only kept his rule for as long as he did because he was skilled at keeping the peace in that region and the Romans figured why mess with something that's working for a change in that area. That mindset of keeping the peace, especially in Judea and the city of Jerusalem, is directly what informs Caiaphas' blurted out statement here. It's along the same lines of, what is wrong with all of you? Keeping the peace of the nation is the utmost priority here. Who cares who this guy is? The simplest solution is to just be rid of him. Keep our peace and stability, keep the Romans out of it, and move on with our lives. Stop overcomplicating everything. It's that simple. That was Caiaphas' thought process, and that was his intention with the words that came out of his mouth. But as we know the truth of, with everything, God is the one ultimately in control and always the one with the last word. And so, in verses four, uh, 51 through 52, now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. According to biblical scholarship, this does not mean that this was on purpose by Caiaphas. There are multiple examples throughout Scripture of God working through individuals without them even knowing that what they've done or said was what God directly wanted them to do or say. For instance, none of the oppressive people groups of the ancient world did what they did in attacking, intermarrying with, or carting off the people of Israel and Judah to exile because they were knowingly and purposely obeying the God of Israel. The kings of Assyria and the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar did not have Yahweh in mind when they attacked the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Pontius Pilate certainly didn't care about what the messianic prophecies were and only cared about his own skin. Neither of the Roman local rulers, Felix nor Festus, 
cared about if Paul told them was the truth or not. They only cared about pleasing people and following Roman law, therefore sending Paul to Rome itself. And the Antichrist will only seek to implement his persecution and crushing worldwide rule, convincing much of the world's population at that point that he's the Messiah because of his own pride and indwelling by Satan himself. But in all these examples and many more from Scripture, people who did and said what they did and said, they thought they were doing for their own reasons. But ultimately... Who was the one directing what they did and said? Thank you. I'm glad you've been paying attention for the past few minutes. All right. God had determined and even given prophecy about the Assyrian and Babylonian kings attacking and destroying Israel and Judah because he was disciplining his people. Pontius Pilate was put in power as governor over Judea eventually only because of Herod Archelaus's insanity and removal and to carry out the Roman form of execution, crucifixion, as a direct fulfillment of a prophecy God had given to David hundreds of years before. Felix and Festus refused to free Paul and rather sent him to Rome because God wanted him to share the gospel in the capital city of the entire Roman Empire, leading many to faith in Jesus there. And the Antichrist will only do what he will do as exact and direct fulfillment of God's prophecy given in several biblical books, Daniel, 2 Thessalonians, and Revelation. In the exact same way, Caiaphas only said what he said for his own selfish and humanly logical reasons and had no clue that the words he uttered were also given by God as prophecy about Jesus. Jesus would not only die for the nation of Israel, but he would die for all of those God had elected from eternity past, including Gentiles into one family of his children. This was also in direct fulfillment of the prophecy God had given to Isaiah, that the Messiah would be the light to all the nations, including all of the pagan Gentile ones, not just to Israel. And I think I can speak for all of us in here who don't have a drop of Jewish blood in us. Thank you, Lord, for including us once pagan, disgusting Gentiles into your holy family through Jesus as well. That's what was going on behind the scenes, which no one but God and therefore the Holy Spirit that was revealing this to the Apostle John knew. As pointed out by one biblical as by biblical scholarship as well, the biting irony here is that the Holy Spirit had it, John include here this: the Sanhedrin's greatest fear in allowing Jesus to continue what he was doing was what that a movement would grow, inciting Rome. And Rome would destroy Jerusalem and its temple. So they had Jesus killed in their paranoia to try to avoid all of that. But their humanly and satanically inspired arrest plans and execution fulfillment for Jesus, in reality, did nothing 
to avoid this from, from eventually happening anyway. Several false prophets stirred up another separate movement in rebellion against Roman occupation, starting in 66 AD and ending with the Romans attacking and destroying Jerusalem along with its temple in 70 AD. They couldn't stop it from happening anyway. No doubt, by way of the Holy Spirit, John had this in mind when he wrote those ironic words by the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas as he wrote this gospel about 20 years after the Romans ended up destroying Jerusalem and the temple. It just goes to show, right, the futility of thoroughly human plans. You do everything to avoid something you have in your mind as a possibility, and it ends up happening anyway. And it also goes to show the providential plans God always has had, that nothing will thwart, especially in connection with what would happen to Jesus here very soon. We see the human side of this in verse 53. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. From that point on, everything would start hurling towards Jesus hanging on the cross. Knowing the intense movement towards his arrest by the authorities and led by God the Father, Jesus left the greater Jerusalem area, including Bethany, until it was indeed God's timing for everything connected to his arrest to unfold. Verse 54, Therefore Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country, near the wilderness, into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Verses 55 through 57 are what provide the setting for all of the events that would directly lead to Jesus' imminent arrest. Verses 55 through 57. Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. In verse 57, the Sanhedrin's private decision within their gathering and discussion became public proclamation. And now had spilled out into the general populace and it was the talk of the town. The rumors start swirling and swirling and gaining more and more ground, especially as Passover drew near. If you remember, Passover was one of the three required feasts in the Mosaic Law that all Jewish males over a certain age were to observe with sacrifices and purification. Since many Jewish males and their families were traveling from a long distance to come to Jerusalem for the observance, they would arrive early to make sure they didn't miss it, make sure they got lodging before everybody else did. As verse 55 notes, to make sure they accomplished the required purification ritual before the day of Passover and subsequent feast of unleavened bread would happen after that. 
as Jewish people started pouring into Jerusalem from all over the ancient Mediterranean world for the purification rituals prior to Passover, word continued to spread about the rogue preacher from Nazareth who had infuriated, stumped, and frightened the great Sanhedrin that they had put out a PSA for anyone who spotted him to report it to them for his arrest. Talk about juicy news, huh? We know how people are. If something like that happened in Peaburg or Easton, people wouldn't stop talking about it. In fact, it would be all people would talk about. People were no different 2,000 years ago. It's the exact same. Jesus was the number one trending hashtag of the time. And again, all the people were thinking... All the people were thinking was that they had something juicy to talk about. That's all they were. Hey, did you hear? Did you hear? Did you hear? Well, let me tell you. But what was also happening in God's plan was this. Again, behind the scenes. His people from all over the ancient Mediterranean world who hadn't heard yet about his son very quickly did. They would also very quickly hear about the warrant out for his arrest, and they would very quickly find out and talk wildly about why there was a warrant out for his arrest. And so, just as many of God's people strewn all throughout that area of the world would know full well what would end up happening to him very soon. God through this human convention of gossip, was setting up for as many people as possible to know about the death of his son. The unheard of news about the resurrection of his son and what it all meant for them. Next week, we'll talk about the next event that happens in this whirlwind of events that begin with the Sanhedrin's outright public and unabashed announcement for Jesus' arrest that leads up to his death by crucifixion. But for now, we need to see the truth that no matter why humans think they're doing what they're doing, no matter what the circumstances are, God is always working out his plan, whether or not we see it. And no human, or even Satan himself, can ever derail God's plan. The things we're seeing unfold in the world all around us right now are going exactly to God's plan. Humans and their futility think they're working out their schemes and their agendas and their narratives and their plans. Satan thinks he's working out his schemes and his agendas and his narratives and his plans. But all they are are pawns in God's overarching plan for humanity and the world. So... When persecution towards us as Bible-believing Christians standing up for the truth continues to ramp up, remember this, it's not evil humans somehow winning. It's not Satan winning. 
They pathetically think they, that that's what's going on. But instead, it's God who is working out his plan for the world as we edge closer and closer to his plan for the end times. Let that be one of your sources of strength and peace as the persecution towards us as Bible-believing Christians escalates and we remain standing firm in the power and only in the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling us. In the meantime, both now and at that point, when persecution ramps up even more, we have to remember this powerful and beautiful truth about the God we've surrendered to and we serve. Our God is always working. Our God is always working. Our God is always working out his plan for the world, as we just discussed. And God is always working out his plan for us as individual believers, his plan for our families, and his plan for our church. God is always using what you've been through. God is always using what you're going through right now. And God will always use what you will go through, both for your life but also in the life of others. And, unwit and, and oftentimes, like the prophecy that Caiaphas unwittingly spoke, we may not see it, we may not understand it, we may not know what kind of effect it will have on others. Thankfully, we can trust God with all of it. We don't need to see it. We don't need to know it. We don't need to understand it. As referenced by others, here are three things we can dig out from God's word directly related to him always working in our lives. If you're taking notes today, write these down. Number one, God is always working on us and in us. Number one, God is always working on us and God is always working in us. Philippians 2.13, for it is God who is at work in you, both to desire and to work for his good pleasure. No matter how we feel, or how excruciating our pain is, or how bad our circumstances are, God is always working on us as people. And God is always working on our hearts. God will never give up the masterpiece he's creating with us. He will never say, he will never say, you're too broken. You have too many cracks. You're hopeless. I can't do anything with you except throw you in the trash. He will never think that. He will never say that. No matter what our state is, when and where God found us, he's re-sculpting us into something beautiful. The art is beautiful because the art is making us more and more into the likeness of Jesus. And he'll never stop working on us. He'll never stop halfway through, take a step back and mutter to himself, what on earth have I gotten myself into? 
He's always had a plan for us. And so he's never left lost in the process of working on us. And he will never stop crafting us into more and more like Jesus until we die or Jesus himself comes back for us. This is why we have this promise. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work among you will complete it by the day of Christ Jesus when he comes back for us. So, number one was, God is always working on us, and God is always working in us. Number two is, God is always working through us. God is always working in us and on us, and God is always working through us. 1 Corinthians 12, 6, there are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul is discussing the spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit decides who each follower of Jesus should be given. In that discussion, Paul reveals that not only does the Holy Spirit gift us with the spiritual gifts and the skills and the talents he gives to us, but the Holy Spirit also causes what kinds of effects those have on others. In other words, God is working the way we interact with others to have an effect on them. Paul also noted to the Corinthian church that while he planted the seeds of the gospel in the hearts of those who made up that church, and another evangelist named Apollos watered those seeds by nourishing Paul's previous work there with the preaching he was doing afterwards, that neither of themselves mattered. It was God and only God who was the one who was making those gospel seeds grow. As Paul writes to the Colossian church, everything we say or do must be done in glory to God and God will receive the glory for he's the one making anything we do for him have any kind of lasting impact. So if you're prayerfully considering what words he wants you to say to some, somebody else, This is a promise given to us in his word. You can't mess it up. That's a lot of our fear, isn't it? I don't want to share Jesus with this other person because I'm afraid I'm going to mess everything up with them. But if you've kept that in prayer and you've been following the the leading of the Holy Spirit and he tells you now, now you tell this person about Jesus, whatever you say to them, it's going to be God who does anything with it. And you can't mess it up. Because again, it's God's plan. Live for God according to his word and do and say the things to others that his Holy Spirit has gifted you and led you to do and say and it will be God who is always working to make those things have an effect on others. God is always working on us and in us. God is always working through us. And number three, God is always working together all the things that happen in our lives to work together for what? Good. Who's good? Both his good plan and therefore, whether or not we see it or agree with it, our good. Paul writes to the Roman believers 
And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Again, his plan. As pointed out by one biblical scholar, the tense of the Greek word used for work together is a present, ongoing tense. Again, God is always, it doesn't matter when it is in your life, he's always causing everything in our lives to work together for good. God is the source for which all the things that happen in our lives work together for good. Moral good, our spiritual growth, and what kind of future impact those things that happen in our lives will have. God is always causing everything in our lives to work together, to teach us about his holy and good moral standards in his word, to grow those in us through the transformation of the Holy Spirit, and to reveal to us what is deceptively and truly evil. God is always causing everything in our lives to work together, to use every experience to grow our faith. And that's for our good, to deepen our trust in him and to reveal more of who he is to us. Most often, and you guys, I'm sure a lot of you will agree with me on this, most often, revelation we would never have experienced about him had he not allowed that painful experience into our lives. Amen? And we have no clue, no clue, how or when the lessons learned from an indescribably painful trial years ago, decades ago, will come back up again for our remembrance of God's redemption of it, and for God to, both now and in the future, use it to help someone else out. Like I referenced a couple of weeks ago, Paul brings this exact truth up to the Corinthian church when he writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all, every single kind, every single source, all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Since God is always working, God is always redeeming, he has in his plan that the comfort he gave to us and those painful experiences will be used by him through you to bring his comfort to someone else going through something similar. And that, brothers and sisters, is a powerful form of his redemption in our lives as well. Look for it. Look for it. Look for who God is leading you to share the comfort he gave to you years and even decades ago with. And therefore, share the good news of the grace, mercy, salvation, and redemption of Jesus with them as well. God is always working. We may not see it. 
We may not understand it. Like Caiaphas, we may not even have a clue God did something through us. Imagine that. We may not even have a clue God did something through us. We may not see what God is doing in our lives or how it has or will impact someone else until perhaps years later or we're in heaven. And somebody comes up to us and says, hey, that thing you did or said to me years ago, that's what brought me to Jesus. And you might think to yourself, I don't even remember I did or said that. But it's because it's God that is always working through us. God always knows. God always knows because he already has had your entire life's plan as well as the plans for your loved ones in his hands for all of eternity. All we need to do following our experience of repenting from sin and taking Jesus as Savior from that sin and King over the rest of our lives is, on a daily basis, surrender all of who we are to God's will and what He wants us to do for Him each day. And then trust Him with whatever happens out of that. All of this is encapsulated in these famous verses. Verses that are famous... For this reason. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies and your entire lives as a living and holy sacrifice, surrendering that to God every single day, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Worship is not when you enter those doors on a Sunday morning and you sing songs. That's part of it, but that's not all of it. Worship is a daily spiritual service of surrendering ourselves and sacrificing ourselves to God and his plan each and every day and saying, God, work in me and work through me to only do the things you want me to do and say and use those to impact others today. That is what worship is, according to God's word here. So surrender ourselves as a holy sacrifice each day, which is our spiritual service of worship, which will then lead to, and do not be conformed to this world. The entire way this world thinks and views what's going on in the country and in the world is completely opposite of how God wants you to see it. If you, and I've said this multiple times. If your viewpoint on something is in direct agreement with what the world thinks about any given topic, that is a huge, huge, huge red flag. Everything we think and believe should be the complete opposite of the way the world thinks and views things and functions. Why? Because we're being transformed. We're supposed to be, and we're being transformed by the Holy Spirit. And our entire mind and the way we view this world is being renewed, is being transformed. Why? So that we're not following after the way of this world on any given topic, on any given issue but so that we may know and therefore prove what the will of God is in our lives. 
that which is good and acceptable and indeed perfect. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for not only this passage in your word, but also all these other verses we took a look at in your word, how everything goes hand in hand. It is your word. We shouldn't be surprised by any of it. You have your plan. You are working out your plan. You are working in and on us. You are working through us, and you are working everything in our lives. From the moment we were conceived until the moment we take our last breath or you come back for us, all together for good according to your plan. I pray that we would trust you with that. I pray that we would surrender ourselves and sacrifice ourselves to you on a daily basis and surrender ourselves to the Holy Spirit's transformation of our minds and our hearts to see what you have for us to see, to do what you want us to do, to say what you want us to say, and then have you work through all of that and impact others. Lord, we thank you that you are the God of sovereignty. You are the God of sovereignty, and you are the God of goodness and mercy and grace. I pray that we would trust you with all of this. In Jesus' name, amen.